Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Grumpy Collector Podcast. I'm your host, Troy McHenry, an incurable collector of all things. On this week's episode, I interview fellow collector and dear friend, Gary Slan. I've known Gary since 2014 when we met through a mutual friend. Thanks, Dan, who I met at a conference. <laughs> he uh, came up to me. I didn't know him at all, and he loved the Omega Seamaster I had on my wrist, and he happened to have on a... Uh, a BMW branded uh, ball watch and uh, through Dan I got to meet Gary and over the years uh, a group of us which we call the watch bros have talked almost every day going on nearly a decade now on first Google Hangouts and now uh, WhatsApp. Gary and I get into collecting watches, cars, boomerangs, trick kites and much more. The show notes for this one are again pretty straightforward I'm going to just link up Gary's Watch You Seek page as well as his Instagram. That being said, you can always find these show notes and more at thegrumpycollector.com. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show on your streaming platform of choice and give us a five-star review. It really does make a difference. And without further ado, yeah, your life just got better. First, Gary, welcome to the pod. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being part of the Grumpy Collector podcast. You know, uh, as our second guest, with all of our guests, I like to just get do a little bit of background information first. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. I was uh, always into sports and mechanical things. You know, I got my first watch when I was about maybe eight or 10 years old, and it was a chronograph, and I loved it to death. Do you remember the and brand I, or anything? No, but I believe it was a Hamilton. Okay. It had those square rectangular pushers, oh, you wow. know, not waterproof at all. <laughs> That's advanced for a kid, though, to have a chronograph, isn't it? An uncle bought it for me. Okay. Uh, it was very generous of him, and I was totally thrilled with it. I had it for many years, and uh, it, it, it instilled in me a, a, a real love for watches. It has never waned <laughs> in all my, my whole life. I can't believe it. There's very few things I've retained an interest in that long. Uh-huh. And where did you end up going to university at? I went to UCLA. I was a philosophy major. I didn't know that. Philosophy. Yeah, I was a philosophy major, a, a thinker. Uh-huh. And, um, and after... Uh, after UCLA, then I went to law school, which just okay. was a natural progression because law, of course, is all about analyzing and thinking your way through and out of problems. And it just was a logical kind of progression for me. Were you ever a practicing lawyer or attorney or anything? I was. Yeah, I practiced um, bankruptcy law. Okay. And and then I went to work uh, at the IRS and I, I did tax law for a while. and. Uh-huh. And then I became, uh, I moved up to the, actually to the IRS commissioner's office. I had, I ended up developing a very broad range understanding of a lot of the activities within IRS. And, and I became a, an asset in terms of taxpayers that were really struggling with IRS problems mm. could reach out. I was sort of at the highest level that any taxpayer could speak to, to try to resolve a, a really difficult problem. So, oh, that's really interesting. So, yeah. So I was uh, working for taxpayers on the inside of the IRS. It was a pretty unusual <laughs> position. I'm sure some people didn't like me for that, but it was it was kind of fun to feel like I could help. Any tips for us not to get audited? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah, pay your taxes. Don't make stuff up. <laughs> um, and then it's always interesting because I, I really do think of you as someone who's like died through a collector just in your nature, just like it is in mine with whatever, you know, like I collected, first thing I ever collected was rocks and minerals. And then I collected stamps and then coins. What, what, can you remember the first thing you collected as a, as a boy or as a teenager or grown up? I think early on, the, the two things I remember collecting were both stamps and coins, mm. but I was never really seriously into it. So I, I, I didn't go out of my way with stamps to find rare stamps and fill every slot on these books that you mm -hmm. buy. You know, I never did that, but for a little while I, I collected stamps and, um, but later on in life, I really got into collecting. Oh my God, I collected so many things. It's ridiculous. And I, <laughs> I still have everything, which is also oh, that's ri good. ridiculous. I collected, you won't believe this. I collected, I don't even know if you know this about me. Uh -huh. I collected competition dual control kites. Interesting. Where you have two strings. Two strings. So you can make the kites do gymnastics in the air. I have one. Now it's, I don't know if it's competition grip, but it has, and it's like a performance kite. It's called. It's a per, yeah, they're performance kites. It's, 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 kite. it's a trick kite. It's an expensive kite. And we use it when we go to the beach. But other than that, it just stays in the garage. Yeah. Yeah. My most special kite, I would say, is, uh, was made by this, this, this master. It's kind of an interesting story because he claims that the design of this kite came to him from God. He was a, he was a preacher. Oh, wow. And. Turned out it was an exact copy of a famous kite that was made at the time. And and I know the guy who designed the kite. And as a result of this preacher saying the inspiration came from God, the man who designed this kite, be, uh, be, he ended up being nicknamed God wow. by, by his friends. <laughs> okay. But I would say the guy that made this kite, the, the preacher, took it to another level. It was incredibly... Uh, sensitive to air movements. Mm. I had a wind. The meter. preacher or the original guy. The preacher. Okay. The kite would would was flyable in half a mile, a, an hour of wind. Uh huh. Which is so oh, wow. which is so little. I was able to launch it in a gymnasium, and just by slowly walking backwards, you could keep it. All. I could keep this kite in the air and do all kinds of tricks with it. It was a very expensive kite. Wow. And I still have it, as I always right. do with all my, everything I collect. <laughs> I never get rid of it. That, that's got to change. How did you even get into kites? Do you remember what prompted you to learn about them? Or I do, I do not. Okay. As I don't. Yeah, I who knows the impetus sometimes, right? For these yeah, I, fall into. I, I don't know. But again, you know, I liked mechanical things. And although you wouldn't normally think of kites as mechanical, uh, there's a lot of mechanical aspects to it. You know, they have a spider web of support systems to, to keep the, the kite framed properly, uh, the aerodynamics, and they can be adjusted by how mm -hmm. you change what's called the bridle on the kite. Okay. So there's really a lot of mechanical stuff that's involved in setting up the kite and then in, in making the kite fly. Huh. So it was really, it was a lot of fun. And, and when my son was little, we would fly kites together. Oh, that's uh, great. And I collect. I collect, You want to hear about what I collected? Yeah, well, and then, you know, I know I, you and I met through watches, but then I always remembered your email address as like boomerang in it. 
so I, I then I think I learned a little bit that you were really into boomerangs, which to me is fascinating. I collected boomerangs for a very brief period of time. Uh, so I had like six or seven. I eventually I sold them on eBay, but and now I just have a bunch. I love disc golf, so I'm collecting those now. But but tell me about the the boomerangs, yeah. and then tell me what else. Yeah, you're thinking. Yes, I have uh, probably a collection of 200 boomerangs, many of wow. them made by world famous makers. I have thrown with uh, a number of uh, international boomerang competitors. I wow. threw with a former president of the American Boomerang Association. Mm -hmm. I have uh, thrown with uh, people who have won on the world stage, traveling to international boomerang competitions. I've gone <laughs> throwing with these guys. Can I tell you a quick little story? Of course, I love the so, story. That's so the the, the, these guys, obviously, I mean, they have incredibly powerful arms. Yeah. I mean, to watch some of these guys throw a boomerang, you you just know i mean they could make a brick fly they have tremendous power does it look like it's never going to come back but then it does sort of because yes. they go so far out and yes. then they turn at the last right. moment they turn and they and they come back wow we won't get into how that works but, yeah um so so watching these guys throw and putting these boomerangs out to just just mind-blowing distances i thought well i have this one boomerang that really goes far. It was a special boomerang I got from another famous, famous guy in, in the field. Okay. And so I took this boomerang out and I launched this boomerang. I put everything I had into the, I threw with all my power. I launched this thing. And the, and the former president of the American Boomerang Association, um, I forget his last name, his first name was Jim. He watches that thing go out and he goes, wow, look how far that boomerang goes with no power <laughs> i swear to god i wanted to knock him one right on the side of his head nope i put everything i had into it no power okay he's right i mean i can't compare to him but but anyway <laughs> it's one of the things i i remember and um why why do you collect these things like if i think of the boomerangs i think of the kites like some people are fine with just having one kite or one boomerang, how do you go from one boomerang to 200 boomerangs? Boomerangs um, are like people. They, every boomerang has a different personality. Okay. And like some boomerangs can, will fly maybe five feet off the ground. Mm. Those are deadly dangerous because if anybody's nearby, they could, they could take someone's head off. Oh, wow. Um, in fact, I hit Jim in the head with a boomerang. He should have known better because I warned him twice, but... But he knows as an international competitor that the odds are so remote that it will actually hit him. He didn't duck. And oh. when I realized it was on a collision course with his head, I screamed. I said, Jim, the boomerang's coming. And, and it was too late. The boomerang hit him on the head. It sounded like a hammer hitting an oak table. This oh. fuck, horrible sound, horrible, horrible sounds. It, it he got clobbered. He thought and it was blood all over the place. He thought he had to go to the hospital. And the other guy was the calm one. Mm -hmm. He said, "Your head is full of blood vessels. Sit down. Put some <laughs> ice on it. You know, let's just chill for a few minutes. I think you'll be fine." And he was. Yeah. He just had a golf ball sized welt on his head. And this was a boomerang that had lead weights in it, and it was sharp. He, oh. he took a terrible hit. Now, with boomerangs, do people usually collect based on style, material, maker? All of the above, like what's yeah, what's the, somewhat, somewhat. Do people but, go but, deep or broad, and and how how do you consider your collection? Well, a major factor in the boomerang you're going to select to buy is is how does it fly? 
Mm. When you, if, if you're in competition, there's probably, I don't know, there's a number of different um, competitive areas of throwing. There's something called a fast catch where the boomerang goes out, I don't know, 20 yards, 30 yards, I forget. And the, the, the idea is to catch it and throw it and catch it and throw it as many times as you can within, I don't even know. I, I never competed in that, Okay. but you, it's like a stopwatch. And so you want to get in as many throws and catches as possible that, mm. that reach the distance. Then there's something that's completely distance. You want to, you want it to go as absolutely as far as you can. And they've got people standing 200 yards out to mark the, mark the distance. Yeah. Then you've got accuracy, which is, where does the boomerang come back to? So you're standing in like a 30 yard large um, bullseye mm-hmm. and you're in the center of mm. the bullseye, like a, like a you know typical type of target with rings and a bullseye in the center. So you want that boomerang to, you want to catch that boomerang in the bullseye. Where so, you started when you threw it. I don't know if you actually have to throw from the boomerang, from the center of the target, but you have to catch it there. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure where you have to throw from. That's a good question. Okay. Um, So, so, uh, and every step you take away from the center to a a successively further out ring reduces the points that you get on that throw. And there's no, there's no age limit. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the oldest person to win an accuracy competition was maybe in their eighties and they, and the the youngest person to win it, I think was that same, same person's grandson. (laughs) They're both from Australia. And I think he was maybe eight years old and he won international competition for accuracy so it really you know okay it's like any it's like a sport you know you you figure out how to use your instrument and with the when i think of your collection with kites or boomerangs do you feel like they have bell curves where you started a little bit you got really into it and then it kind of tapers back down like are you still actively buying boomerangs are you still no and i don't throw anymore either okay it's very hard on my elbow so that was kind of a, a bummer but it was a lot of fun yeah. it's it's i never got over the thrill of putting a stick out 50 75 yards and mm-hmm. having it come right back to me it's surreal it's I unbelievable i mean <laughs> it defies all logic it does right? it really defies all logic a, a friend of mine who is one of the leading boomerangers in the world ted ted bailey and he has a website you can buy magnificent boomerangs from from this guy he hmm. he gets them from all these estates of famous makers and he's got just incredible incredible stuff um he's also an engineer and he's explained to me numerous times yeah and i couldn't really do a good job of, of telling you, you know, <laughs> how, what makes them come back. Although I have a rudimentary understanding. Okay. And, and what else? I, obviously, I also know um, we both collect pocket knives. Yeah. And we've can... both been very into pocket knives at yeah, different points yeah, in our lives, I right, feel like. Right. Yeah. Not anymore. Although I was sorely tempted to buy one of those uh, William and Henry's today at the watch shop. <laughs> they did look very I, nice. Boy, I love that one that had... Uh, the Damascus uh, Blade. It, it had, a, I think it was a Mastodon handle. Oh, yeah. And they had some that are like cigar cutters, too, that looked pretty sweet. They had like a big circle in the handle. I and that's saw to stick those. a cigar through to clip it. I wondered what that was for. Because yeah. there are... There's a, a a knife called a karambit. Oh yeah, that has that mm-hmm. for a finger, a pinky finger. Yeah, you would hole. not want to put your finger on that one. 
Well, if the knife is open, it's locked open, and that is that helps to give you a grip that you can't lose that yeah. knife. But no, I think with a crambit, I don't think the blade ever closes through the hole, does it? Or it's a fixed blade. I'm trying to think. But on that no, one, no, I have a karambit folder, but okay. I, I don't. You may be right. I don't think it closes yeah. through with this hole. one. Yeah, it would close that blade on that William Henry. Yeah, but I collected. Yeah, he collected knives for a lot. And knives. So like, and, and you had quite a few automatic knives, which I always thought was a niche that I never could get into. They always just scared me too much. But the <laughs> mechanisms are really fascinating. How people approach that problem. I had a typically stupid, dumb type story where I was with a friend of mine typical this would be like in a movie right me and a buddy are drinking beers and uh -huh. we're fooling around with switchblades <laughs> I uh -oh. mean you know yeah, no good's gonna come out of that so I had this one one switchblade which was uh, the largest production switchblade one of the largest uh, ever and it was uh, mm. it was really designed for the military and it had so much weight to it that when the blade snapped open, it was it was a lot of force in the hand. It was like somebody punched your hand. Oh wow! Was how much shock there was. Now, so, did it swing open or did the blade just go straight out? No, that's an OTF out the yes. front. Now uh -huh. this was a switchblade. So okay, it's like a folder. Yeah. Okay. So so there I am. You know, I had a couple of beers, and me and my buddy are kind of laughing. We're looking at all these things. I said, "Oh, you got to look at this one. Massive, massive switchblade here. Watch this." And I and I fired fired the blade, and it swings open, thunked really hard, and it fell right out of my hand. I'm barefoot. And it went right in between my big toe and my next toe, and it stabbed <laughs> in the floor. And it stabbed in the wooden floor. <laughs> I looked at my friend and said, that's it. We're Playtime is over. <laughs> I can't believe we did that. I mean, boy, I would never have told my wife what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that had been a horrible story. How could you be that dumb? You know, you don't think in advance that you could be that dumb. Right. But afterwards, you know, <laughs> you were that dumb. Oh, uh, and then, yeah, you know, for me, the greatest thing about collecting is like just meeting the personalities of the makers, right? Because people who make knives or I imagine people who make kites or boomerangs or watches, they're all a little eccentric, I think, a little bit. Um, yeah, in yeah, a lot they of are. cases. Yeah. yeah, they are. And they, they're, you know, and they're very expert. In, in a number of things, you know, not aerodynamics, machining, mm. um, engineering. Right. Uh, Finishing, yeah. right? Like you really have to be a jack of all trades for a lot of these things. Yeah. What, what else yeah. did you collect? Anything else we haven't? Well, I think uh, pens. I have a pretty oh, substantial yeah? collection of pens. Okay. Uh, focusing mostly on fountain pens. Uh-huh. I, and I, I've got some great ones, you know. I, I mean, I don't go for pens that are precious metal sure you know but i have pens that maybe maybe they cost upwards of a, a grand okay oh very nice yeah you know my my previous guest um olivia she also collects fountain pens and watches so it's interesting we, i wonder reach out to her maybe she'll buy some from me yeah <laughs> she, she might her specialty which i um it's right in my wheelhouse is she really likes japanese made pe fountain pens where a lot of the times they're either doing really amazing inlaid marquetry or like mm -hmm. inlaid abalone yeah i love the idea of lacquer like to me chinese or japanese lacquer is very interesting to me of the different coats and how it just because gets this warmth to itself you yes know, like I, this. I i have some of those they're a bit fragile the finish mm. is fragile you yeah know, i you, could see that you drop it and it the some of that material could just come off the oh pan. i bet yeah 
and I've never gotten into fountain pens. I, for me, when I used to have fountain pens, the, the ink and everything would just go everywhere. And so I'm, I'm strictly a rollerball guy yes, at this point. Yes. You really, it almost takes mechanical expertise to be able to load a fountain pen without making a mess. Yeah. And my wife is perpetually annoyed with me that I won't show her how to load, fill her fountain pen. But my wife is not mechanical and I, mm. could, I could just see, see ink a real mess if she, so I just don't want her to do it. <laughs> well, why? Well, why? I can do it. I can do anything. I can do it. Okay. Later. You know, right. Right. After dinner, tomorrow. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about what's like your best and worst find with the things you've collected. Anything that really stand out was like it was the bargain of the century or an amazing barn find in an antique store or something. Or, or, or conversely, what was the ones where you felt like, man, I paid way too much and this was a turd or man, this was just wow. a bad deal. I or wish, you had huge regrets would, about afterwards. I wish you would have asked me that question in advance so I could think about it. But honestly, I can't <laughs> outside, say that... Outside of the gold Vacheron overseas That's you the buy. only one that comes to mind. <laughs> I can't really think of anything else, you know? And that was just stupidity on my part not to return that watch right away. I had a window to do that. Uh-huh. I had, you know, I, I had such a... It was such a strong possibility that I was going to end up not liking it that I, I should have returned it, but I decided to give it a shot mm-hmm. and then it was too late to, to return it. And I ended up not liking it and yeah. lost, uh, you know, $8,000. Yeah. That's a tough lesson. That's very, a, very, that's, very tough. That's so a tough I, I, I hope I'll never do that again. I wonder if you could have just, you know, for those listening, you know, um, Gary bought this yellow gold Vacheron overseas watch and the dealer uh, promised him it was black the dial, but when it came, it really was a dark brown and it just did not suit your taste. I wonder if you could, could have just, do they, can you even buy replacement dials? I probably not. No, no, no. You don't want to do that. And you yeah. know that. I mean, yeah. you don't I mean, want not to not aftermarket, but sometimes you always see like Rolex dials on eBay and stuff. Right. But it's, it, it won't there. match the serial number. It'll yeah. reduce the value of the watch. If I knew for sure I was going to keep it and it's always a crapshoot, you never know with watches if you're really going to love it. That's true. Really, if the dial was black, would I have loved it? I don't know. There were some other issues for me with the watch. Mm-hmm. In a way, I felt the Vacheron was, was neither really a dress watch nor really a sports watch. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't like dress watches much. I, I really have only one in my collection and I love it, but I never wear it. Sure. So to the extent that it was arguably a dress watch, you know, mitigated against my loving it in the long run. So there was really that that factor also that should have warned me that I, I maybe should just return it. But mm-hmm. I, you know, it's a gorgeous watch. It's a legendary watch. Well, um, was it on of, strap or bracelet? I'm, I can't remember. Bracelet. I would only bracelet. Oh, very nice. Yeah, you know, it's such a famous watch, and it really it's it's beautiful. It's one of the holy trinity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I thought I got to give it a chance. Yeah. So I paid eight thousand dollars to give it a chance. How long did you have it for? I don't know, less than a year. Okay. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is right. Lesson (laughs) learned. Love at first sight. You know, that's a very interesting. Yeah. What do you What do you think about that with collecting, or is it a slow burn with for you with most things? No, not necessarily. Um, Love at first sight. There is much to learn about a watch, much that is revealed 
over the course of time yeah. that you cannot appreciate when you first hold it in the hand and put it on the wrist. It depends on the watch, but some watches you get the whole story right away. Yeah. Some watches, That's you know, true. like let's say you're buying a watch to use as a chronograph. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and over time using it, you, you feel that it's just not, it doesn't work that well for you. Whatever it was, the ergonomics of the buttons, mm -hmm. um, whatever it might be. I, I frequently find that there are aspects to a watch that, that require time in order to appreciate. And sometimes when you get that appreciation, you realize it's not the right watch for you. And I think the watch you have on right now is a perfect probably example of that, which is an Omega Ploprof, which I think is, in my opinion, was a watch that took a while to grow on me of having to try it on multiple times and really understand the ergonomics. Because in pictures, it doesn't seem like it works, but when it's on the wrist, it does. Yeah, this was a watch that that I, I liked because it's a, it's a monster and it has such a distinct DNA, such a distinct character. Um, I, I thought it was maybe risky, but I got a great deal on it, and I was confident that this one, if I don't like it, I can get my money back out of it. But mm -hmm. I'm I'm intrigued, and I want to try it. And really, I I just I just loved it, and I, I, I enjoy wearing it. And the uh, a big test for me was I wore it on a month-long trip in Europe. It was the only watch I took. Mm. And I never, <laughs> never, I loved it. Wow. The, uh, one solid month on a trip. I lived with it. Absolutely loved it. So <laughs> this watch it will be a keeper. Nice. Well, you never know for sure. But sure. but I do really like it and, and I enjoy wearing it. And I've had it now for, I don't know, seven years. Okay. It's definitely so, my favorite colorway of the Plopros too. I think the white is underrated. And I went through this particular colorway. I I was attracted to because I wanted a like a white shark, you know, a, mm. an all white watch with a white band. Yeah. And I think I had maybe purchased and sold probably three watches that were all white before this one. Okay. And in the course of buying and selling those three, I felt very certain that I would love to have an all-white watch. Mm. I just hadn't found the right one. Yeah. So when I got this, it just worked. It clicked. I would say you're probably the person I think of most. You're almost famous for that. Like your struggles to find the right blue dial watch. Which Where you cast a wide net and will buy six blue dial watches. And I still don't have one. a blue watch I really <laughs> like. And I purchased and sold so many of them. And orange. Orange oh, watch. orange is a tricky color too. But you know, I think orange. I finally, I do. I've ended up with two that I really like. Well, one is the um, the dream sickle or orange sickle. No, no, I'm no. selling that. I, okay. I, I don't like beautiful. Love it, but yeah. I don't want it. I don't want mm -hmm. it. I, is the um, the bubble, the corn bubble. Oh, the, yeah, that's a very unusual. Watch. I love that. I just yeah. love that orange corn bubble. And then I, you think this is funny? I have a, a titanium. Um, Benaris Megalodon. Oh, in orange. In orange. I That's not the one I got you. I got you the blue one. You got me the blue. Do you still have that? No. Okay. No, I sold it, and that was a lovely watch, you know. But it really—it's an enormous watch. It is an enormous and it's watch. And it's in in steel. It is very very heavy, and I like big and I like heavy. But that was pushing it. Yeah. But in titanium, it's really okay. <laughs> what do you, What do you think are your guilty pleasures with watches? 
anything like you really enjoy, but you almost don't want to tell people because they may, you know, uh, snub their nose at it. Guilty pleasures. I I really can't think of anything. Nothing. Well, too give crazy me an example. What, what's a guilty pleasure with watches? Yeah, that's a good question. Or I would say like, um, yeah, like you. Well, like one for you might be. Um, I mean, you do like large watches, right? Yeah. And I think for some people, they'd be like, oh, I don't know about that, but you really well, you own it, my... and they look great. I mean, but, but you know, like your oceanographic Hublot, uh, um, that's. Um, that's a tough watch to wear sometimes. I love it too, That's actually. That's huge, enormous. Yeah, but it's... It's like a G-Shock size. It's, it's, it's like a sandwich. The The top and the bottom are, are like a slice of titanium. Mm-hmm. And then in between is uh, like a is plastic, a polyurethane. Oh, interesting. Some type of plastic yeah. material. So even though it's a, I don't know, 52 millimeter watch, Yeah, it's... Um, it's lighter than most of my large watches. It's lighter than the Plokrof. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's very so true. It's really quite, and it wears very well. And boy, it's that talk about personality. That watch is loaded. <laughs> and, and then, you know, I have to say, we have to bring up cars because I think the the Venn diagram of like guys who are into watches, it's interesting. A lot of them then are either also into pens or knives. A lot of them are into cars. And then it seems like, you know, a lot of guys are also sometimes into like guitars or collecting musical instruments. And you're, I think I would definitely consider you a car guy as well. And I remember asking you, I said, oh, Gary, we should, we should talk about you collecting cars. And you're like, Troy, I don't collect cars. I've only had one at a time. But if I put together the string of cars you've owned of your fun cars, it's a, an amazing group of cars. Yeah, so, that's true. So well, let, I, let's go I, through. I when was, because I think your first nice car was maybe like a 911. Did you say no, that long it was, ago? It was my Maserati Grand Sport. I owned oh, go that. back further than that. When was the first sports car you ever bought? Well, I I don't even know if I ever truly had a sports car until um, a year and a half ago when I when I bought that Porsche. Oh, interesting. Well, I consider your Maserati a sports car. That, that is debatable. I mean, oh, uh, it's a coupe with a Ferrari engine in it, no? Well, an engine doesn't make it a sports car. Okay. I feel that handling makes a car a sports car. But mm. who's to say you couldn't make a, a pickup truck handle phenomenally? Would you call that a sports car? I, I don't know. Yeah. I was a member of a of an online forum devoted to, to Maserati, my particular car. And, I, and, and it was a very... What was yours? Grand Sport. Okay, Grand Sport. Uh huh. Very popular what, what car year? on the racetrack. Yeah. My it, the the car was manufactured from 2004 to to I think it was 2004 maybe to 2007 something right around there. I, and mine was a 2006. Okay. It was very popular on the racetrack. Uh huh. It handled phenomenally well. When I took it to a racetrack as a novice. I was required to drive with a um, uh, a, a race driver, mm. a, a track expert. Sure. And he took the first spin around the track. Okay. And coming in after the first lap, he turned to me and he said, this car is wonderful. Would mm. you mind if I took it around again? Mm. So that tells you. That tells you why the car was so popular on the racetrack. But on the forums, I would ask... Would you say that this Maserati, which is a four-seater, yeah. you know, yeah. is a sports car? And right. most of the guys said, no, 
Mm. It's not. But what really, so my response was, well, what do you call a sports car? For me, it's about handling. Sure. So going back to your basic question about mm -hmm. collecting cars and what yeah. drove me to collect cars is different, I think, from everything else that I've collected. Because for me, I've also, my whole life, I've been an athlete. Mm. I've played, okay. I, I played, you know, competition volleyball. I, I ran track. I was in gymnastics. I, I'm a racquetball state champion. I mean, I love mm -hmm. the athletic experience. Sure. And for me, a, a sports car, a well handling car is a sports experience. Right. Learning how a car handles how mm -hmm. how to put a car into a drift and get out of a drift drifting right and get out of it drifting left and get out of it when i when i first got a car and to drive and i was 17 years old i i was duty bound on rainy days on the weekends to go to these big empty parking lots and practice spinning out my car and regaining control nice. because i felt like i needed to understand the athleticism of a car, mm. God forbid, if I should ever be in a situation where, where I lost control of the car, I needed to understand how cars handle and how to regain control. Sure. So, cause it's like a tool and yeah, you need to learn how it works. Exactly. Especially if your life's on the line, it's a right. lot different. But than... it's more, it's not like a tool in the sense, like a, a lathe or right. a bandsaw, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. more like, I don't know. Yeah. And, and how much of, for you, it's all about how it drives, how it handles. Yes. How much does style or looks play into the equation? Well, it's just like with watches. You know, you want to buy something that's play, pleasing to your eye. Yeah. So that's certainly a component in, sure. in the purchase. But not everything. No, not everything. Ultimately, I've got to have a car that I enjoy the handling which is really why I didn't like the Porsche. I mean, I had a yeah, late model track Porsche. And yeah, you sold the Maserati. And then what did you buy when you sold the Grand Sport? I bought a, a 2019 Porsche 911 GTS. So that's okay. their, that's their. Most people civilian... think that car is like the perfect 911 today outside of like the G. T -T -T yeah, right. right. Yes, which are heavily track focused. Yeah. The, G the GTS is like civilian, but, but with significant track capability. Mm -hmm. But the Porsches have a unique design handling wise, which we don't really need to get into. But, sure. but um, basically the, the rear end on a Porsche comes out very, very easily. 99% of Porsche drivers never take it to that limit. Sure. You know, I enjoy crossing that line mm -hmm. and putting the car into an un uncontrolled state so that I can regain control or enjoy having a car drift. I mean, for me, that it's like an athletic experience. Yeah. And uh, the Porsches, the rear end, just come out so early, so hard and fast. I, I was talking to a regional director of racing, he also teaches uh, Porsche racetrack driving. Mm -hmm. And in a conversation I had with him, you know, I said, there's two things that kill the Porsche for me. One is the, the rear end is extremely tail waggy on that car. Right. And he said, that's true. Yes, it is. Yeah. And I said, and two, it's not a car that you can be playful with. 
in terms of intentionally kicking out the rear yeah. end, enjoying a drift, regaining control, because on a Porsche, when that happens to regain control, you have to accelerate. Mm. So you're not going to do that on public roads. Right. You, I mean, did you, you, know, did you feel like, like the GTS had too many nanny systems where you couldn't really enjoy it or you could then it felt like you were losing control a bit it wasn't the nannies it was just okay. the, the the basic characteristics of the cars handling no it's not the clinical it was the heavy bias of oversteer which mm. is the rear end coming out okay i mean my first experience with that porsche i was taking a turn on my way home freeway on ramp concrete wall on the right Left-hand turn, the concrete wall is maybe 10 feet high, taking that turn a million times. So I'm lollygagging it through the turn on, on the Porsche, not driving hard at all. Yeah. And that rear end came out on me. I have never had a rear end mm. come out on me so early on that turn, and I was sliding right into the wall. Now, fortunately, I've had a lot of experience, so I, I, I corrected right away, and I probably got within a foot of the wall. <laughs> you know, it was very scary because at that point, I was beginning to realize this is not the car for me, and I'm not going to be able to sell it if I crack it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I did try to kick the rear end out a, a, a few times. And I managed to do that and, and play with it. But it's not a car that is designed to be playful with in, in that way. Okay. You know? so, so you responded by selling that car. And what did you buy instead? I bought a Ferrari 599. And uh, how, tell me what you think of that compared to the, to the Porsche and then also back to the Maserati. Uh, there's a little bit of DNA with the Maserati. Well, they're all so different. You know, there's mm. an expression in, in sports cars that, that it's more fun to drive a slow car fast than it is a fast car slow. Absolutely. So the Maserati was a magnificent handling car that was easy to put into a drift and to control mm. the drift. Very, mm -hmm. very easy. Um, so I think that that's an example of driving a slow car fast, even though the Maserati is by no means a slow car. Yeah. Um, skipping over the Porsche, going to the Ferrari. Initially, I was frustrated with the Ferrari because the limits of adhesion were so extreme. I could not get that car to slide. Mm. I couldn't, I had to go very fast, which is scary because if you miscalculate, you know, at a, you know, 80, hundred miles an hour on a turn, you you're know, off you, the road. Yeah. You don't, you need a lot of room, which I never found that mm. much room with the Ferrari and plus over 600 horsepower, you know, it's just a lot to play with. Mm. So I never really, so I had to majorly change my mindset on what I enjoyed with a car because I couldn't, I couldn't enjoy with a Ferrari what I normally enjoy, which is getting the car into a drift and having fun sliding around. Mm -hmm. What I ended up enjoying with a Ferrari was just the mag magnificence of, of, of the handling of that car. I found a mountain, mm -hmm. windy mountain road once, uh, only once, and it was the greatest drive of my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The car just, just, the level of feedback of communication was surreal. Like before you knew what was happening with that car before it did any kind of sliding at all. I, I, I could never re I was never really able to put it into a major slide, but the car could sort of, if you will, 
inadvertently slide a little bit because I was going so fast and so mm. hard. But when that would happen, it was so simple. It was so easy. It was so mm. controllable. There was no, no fear, no reticence. The car just communicated everything to me. And of course I had a friend of mine in the car. I know, and thank God he didn't go to the bathroom in the car. I know I freaked him out, you know, and when we were done, he said, boy, you went a lot faster than I would have gone. And he's been to the racetrack. Oh, wow. He tracks okay. his car. So thankfully, knowing that mm -hmm. it gave me the freedom to kind of cut loose a little bit with, with the car. Sure. So, so what's next in the car journey then? Well, I've kind of taken an opposite tack here. And now I'm picking up a, an Aston Martin. Okay. A current model, a DB11, uh -huh. which is not going to handle anywhere near as nice as the Maserati. But if I can put it into a slide, and mm -hmm. if it's and if if when it's in a slide, if it's easily manageable, if it's balanced, mm -hmm. that's what makes it fun. So maybe I'll end up liking the Aston, but and probably the, a softer ride too. I imagine. Oh, it'll definitely be a softer ride. Yeah. But the the what I missed with the Ferrari being able to, you know, really have some fun. I think the, the Aston may be more like the Maserati. Okay. You know, and if yeah. so, I, I may end up keeping the car. Uh -huh. you know, it certainly, it gives me a much more luxurious, comfortable experience inside the car than the Ferrari did. The Ferrari was very austere inside. Mm -hmm. Great to throw around on windy mountain roads, but if you wanted to take a four-hour drive on it, you're in a, a rock-hard, you know, racing seat. The radio stinks. There's no navigation. Yeah. Everything is hard to the touch. It's like you know, brushed aluminum or carbon fiber. There's nothing. It's not luxurious or <laughs> particularly comfortable, you know. But the handling, otherworldly. Mm -hmm. Um, what's next on the horizon for you outside of obviously this Aston coming? That's very exciting. Anything watches or anything else? No, in a way, I almost feel like with watches, I've kind of been there, done that. Although on the flip side of the coin, I feel like if you re really love watches, you're never fully been there, done that. I mean, I still look at I watches and I, yeah. like, I, I see these new things coming out and there's a lot of fresh looks that you haven't seen before, things I would love to put on my wrist, things mm -hmm. that I feel like make my collection look kind of old, but you know, really it's enough already. I got, <laughs> I've got yeah. more watches I can ever wear and I, I'm really focused now on, on, on figuring out which ones I really, really love to wear as opposed to the ones I just love to wear. Right. Yeah. I love all of them. They're all like my kids, you know, Wait. but I can't, I'm not going to keep them all. And your collection is so what I'd call high low, which is great in that I, ever, since I've known you, you get just as excited about an ocean crawler and how you love the suede strap and the blue dial and that just as much as you love your Royal Oak offshore, let's say. And I don't think a lot of collectors can ever get beyond the name on the dial to I would really agree. look at things objectively. And so I think that's a huge strength and kudos to you that you, I think, have always been that way. And, I don't know if you can speak to that at all, but that's just, that's really hard for people to get beyond the brand. I think looks is a big thing with watch collecting. You know, you gotta, you gotta love the looks. Now, it's not only looks for me. It's also the quality of the machining and the finish and, 
And I may love the look of an inexpensive watch, but over time, you know, every, if every time I pull the crown out and adjust the time and screw it back in, if it feels like there's sand in the, in the, mm. you know, in the threads, cause it's not really well, That's well machined or, uh, you know, you see little flaws in the finish, Th those things start meaning more over time. And there's very few inexpensive watches I have found that meet my minimum standards of having enough quality that I can be satisfied with them. But I've, I have found a few mm -hmm. and I, and I do enjoy them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for people who want to follow along on social media, where can, where can they find you? Instagram handle or okay, watch well, forums? I, 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 well, I, on, on watch you seek, I, that's funny on watch you seek. I am Gary one, two, three. Mm -hmm. on instagram i am gary123 from wuss which is oh, watch you seek <laughs> perfect <laughs> so i remember josh said oh wow that's a great name gary awesome <laughs> whatever happened to him oh well, gary this has been great thank you so much well thank you for having me on your show absolutely take care all right I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with my dear friend, Gary Slan. Reminder, the show notes are online at thegrumpycollector.com. If you know a fellow incurable collector that you think I should interview, drop me a line at my Instagram page, at thegrumpycollector. I'm always on the lookout for collectors of all things with that common thread of watches. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. And lastly, if you're a longtime listener, you've surely already noticed the strict recording schedule I adhered to back in November, December of last year totally went out the window. The demands of my day job of being a parent, son, and husband, as well as co-leading Red Bar Raleigh Watch Club, have just been taking priority. But fear not, the Grumpy Collector podcast is still very much active, just taking needed breaks from time to time. Until next time, keep collecting, and I'll see you on Instagram. So long.